Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome one more time to Encounter Church. I want to put something on your radar coming up. Next week is our fall launch. We call that an invite Sunday here at Encounter. And uh, the reason for that is just that it's a perfect Sunday to invite the one person you would love to experience Jesus to come to church. Catered church picnic, more food and fun and games to play. Of course, Jesus is at the center of all of it, especially during our time of worship. I uh, want to just name something about like creating an invite culture is that sometimes like church people, followers of Jesus, have a difficult time like making that invitation to join you at church. It's like a lot going on there. And I just want to say that it doesn't have to be any more complicated than sometimes we make it. Uh, It can be something so much simpler than all of that. It's it's when you discover something that uh, you've had a positive experience with. Maybe it's a new song or a band. Maybe it's a TV show that you're way into or it's a restaurant or an app for your phone. When you, when you experience something positive, when you discover that thing, you want to share it with the people around you. And if you've had a positive experience with Jesus, it's, it could be the most natural thing in the world, and I hope it is, for you just to share that with the other people, maybe on your team, the other people that you, uh, you, you go to school with or, or you work with at the office or on the job site. And next weekend is a perfect time to make that invitation. Uh, we're in a series right now. It's called It's called Weird. <laughs> And the idea of this series is we're kind of making our way verse by verse through the book in the Bible of First Peter. And we'll, we'll get to some of that content here in just a moment because I, I recognize there's some guests and we're going to get us on the same page. Is that uh, following Jesus is oftentimes weird. It's strange. The way Christians operate and conduct themselves is just plain weird. We kick this thing off in week one and we say the way that Christians deal with setbacks is weird. The way that, diff- that Christians deal with difficult times is weird. Point in case, just earlier this week, I was talking with a friend of mine at the church here, and she goes, we got a company-wide email notice uh, saying that at a certain time, the company is going to be laying off literally thousands of jobs. This was national news. Everybody recognizes this is coming. And so we're all at our desks, and we're all waiting for the email to come in to tell us whether or not we still have a job here. And she goes, If I were to put a word on the emotional state sitting in front of my computer, waiting to find out if I have a job tomorrow, peace. She goes, peace is the word that I would use to describe my emotional state. Guys, that's weird, isn't it? It's weird that Christians can do that. It's weird that Christians can have such peace looking at an unknown future. Who knows, who cares what the future holds when you know the one who holds the future? That's week one. Christians are weird when it comes to setbacks. Week two, last week, we talked about how Christians are weird when it comes to our values, the way that we spend our money generously on other people, the way that we spend our our leadership, our time, our power, our influence on behalf of people with less time, with less influence, with less power. It's weird. Christians are weird. It's weird to follow Jesus. And today we're getting closer to the heart of it all. And we're going to take a look in First Peter. And we're going to see that at the center of this whole thing, it really truly is a weird religion. And in fact, that's what I named this message. The name of this one is Weird Religion. Because it is so strange and it is so unlike any other religions out there. And for some of you, I'm going to say some things. And for some of you, uh, you're, you're going to hear this, and, and maybe you're kind of new-ish to the faith, or maybe you're doing some like unpacking and like examining some things for the first time in a while. And I'm going to say some things, and you're going to be like, "Yeah, that is weird. We are weird. You guys are weird." And I want to own that for us. 
At the center of our faith, let's keep in mind, at the center of our faith is an event of a man who died and came back to life. And the, the promise is that if you trust him, you will too. It's weird. It's weird that at the story captured of this thing, our Bible, our sacred text, isn't just like handed down from heaven, leather bound, red letters, and maps in the back. It's weird that this story is a collaboration, a partnership between God and human beings. Uh, 35 or so human beings over 1,600 years on three different continents is where this thing came from. That's weird. It's weird that the stories in here are stories like Jonah, who gets swallowed by a fish, swallowed for three days, three nights inside the fish. He's thrown up onto shore and lived to tell the story. It's weird. It's weird that the animals go two by two, like into the ark on Noah, getting ready for a flood in the desert. It's weird. What I want to tell you is that however weird you think this thing is, it's even weirder than that. It's even stranger than all of that. And I'm going to tell you why. Normally, when you you look at a religion, you ask the religion a set of questions. You ask the religion, what does this religion require? What does religion require? And you could probably answer that. I mean, even if you haven't been, to, if this is your first time in church, like you can probably answer the question, what does religion require? It, it requires following the rules. It, it requires being a good person. It requires telling the truth. It, was, it requires obedience. It requires treating people well. It requires generally, for as long as you can, you're as good as you can, and at the end of the line, there's a pot of gold called heaven somewhere along the way. And some of you are going to do that unpacking over the next few years. Some of you are going to do that, that curiosity, and you're going to ask yourself some difficult questions. And one of those things is going to be is, and I hope you do, how good is good enough? So Sandra got to thinking. And Sandra was wondering where her Grandma stood and how her grandma would answer some of those questions. And her grandma, you've got to recognize, is the sweetest Georgian woman on the history of the planet. Like just a peach of a gal. You see what I did there with Georgia? Anyway, went to church her entire life, never missed a Sunday. Such a good person, right? I mean, it is just, if a mosquito bites her, sucks up her blood, it goes away singing there's power in the blood. Like this is what kind of person like she was. But she never really talked much about her faith. She never really talked much about eternity or heaven or Jesus or really any of that. So Sandra, as a young woman, was wondering, I wonder how some of my, I wonder how my grandma would answer some of the questions. And so she kind of creates this plan of like, this ruse of, of going there to learn her famous world, you know, world famous chocolate chip cookie recipe. And, and she's going to like ask some of these questions. And so they get to the baking part of the, of the afternoon and the cookies are just kind of doing their thing in the oven, and she, she starts asking these questions about eternity, and you know, Grandma, you're 90, so death isn't like a long ways off. 90-year-olds recognize that, by the way. Like, you get a little nervous talking to old people about that. If you're 90, you, you, you're kind of like prepared for it. So it's like, Grandma, you know, have you ever thought about these things, you know? And they start talking about it, and, and Sandra, she, she wants to know, she, she asks the question very, very, very specifically, she goes, Grandma, if you died like today, and it's not like out of the realm of possibility. But if you, if you died today, do you know that you would go to heaven? 
And Grandma looks back at Sandra and she goes, I sure hope so. I hope so? I hope so? Like 90 years of being like the best kind of person, 90 years of checking all the boxes, 90 years of following the religion so perfectly, and the best you can do in those moments is, I hope so? And honestly, that's kind of a normal religion kind of response. You kind of do the best you can. You're the best person that you can be for as long as you possibly can. And then you get to the end and you're just kind of like, Hail Mary, I hope so. We're going to see this morning, there's a better way, there's a different way. And it's, it's not a normal way. And it's so much weirder than all of that. And rather than me tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to let step aside. Peter, in First Peter, is going to tell you, he's writing this, this, this kind of open letter 2,000 years ago, and he's also in the power of God, his Holy Spirit, he's writing it to us today. And when he is describing what this faith, what this weird religion, this weird faith is all about, this is what Peter says. It's not about following these rules. Let's see if you can catch what it's actually about. So First Peter, we're continuing on verse by verse here, and we'll pick it up in verse 22. And he goes, Peter starts off and he goes, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that, and we got some hints here, you have sincere love for each other. And then he goes, uh, a key line here, he goes, so love, love one another deeply. Love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply and from the heart. And we're starting to kind of get at the, the, the core of this whole thing here. That at the center of all of it, at the center of religion, is another set of rules to make sure to follow. But for Peter, and he's writing these letters, these open letters to exiles and to all of us thousands of years ago for today, and he's going, but the center of, of weird Christianity, the center of all that is love. And however weird it sounds now, it was even weirder when he was writing it. Because he's writing to these people. Like I said, they're exiles. They don't have homes. They had to leave those homes. They don't have businesses. They had to leave those businesses. They don't have families around. They had to spread apart for safety reasons and kind of go everywhere throughout the whole Roman Empire. They were a spread, scattered people living as foreigners in that place. And Peter's writing this and he goes, you know how I want to, I want to conduct yourselves? Love. You... You want, me, you want me to like love the people around me? Do you have any idea how ridiculously hard that is? And what makes it so weird is that Christianity in the first century was kind of like the unreligion. It didn't almost count as a religion when other people kind of interacted and engaged with this whole thing. Because a normal religion would have things like temples and priests and sacrifice. And you'd go to these temples, these holy places that were extra holy, and you'd talk to the priests, and the priests would tell you whether or not you were good with God or God was good with you. And more often than not, the case was God wasn't good with you. You were not good with God. And so some sacrifices needed to be made on your behalf so that you could get good with God. And then you rinse and repeat. And then you just do it over and over again from, from day after day after day after day. That's normal religion. And then these, these exiled Christians show up on site and it's like, well, where's your temple? And they don't, we don't really have a temple. And they go, where, where, Where's your priest? And they go, we don't super have like the priest that we have to go to. We kind of go to Jesus directly. Well, what, what kind of sacrifices do you have to make? And it's like, here's the, here's the weird thing. Like there was this once and for all sacrifice. His name was Jesus. And because of that, like we, we don't have to do any of this stuff. We, we don't have to have temples. We don't have to have priests. We don't have to make sacrifices anymore. 
And it's like, what do, you, what do you do all the time? And Peter's like, love. Yeah. I was talking to somebody earlier and they said, if you think this entire thing, this whole faith, Christianity, all of it, if you think that it doesn't make sense, it's possible that you're just now starting to understand it. It doesn't make sense. You know, people are like, well, you don't have temples, you don't have priests, you don't have sacrifice. Like, what do you do? How do you, how do you get good? Oh, if you want to know if you're good enough, I got it. Um, you're, you're relating to God. You're relating to the divine. Whatever concept, whatever idea you have of the divine, it, it comes as a result of really how the world works. It, it's kind of like a resume. It's like getting a job. You want to get the good job. You want to get the job of the dream. You got to work your tail off. You got to have a great resume. You got to have great references. You got to have a lot of experiences. And maybe you'll get the job. If you want to get on the team, you want to make the team, you want to get the position after you make the team, you want to be on the starting team, you want to do all these things, you've got to work your tail off. You've got to show up, not on time, on time is late, early is on time now. You've got to show up early, you've got to put in the effort, you've got to put in the work, and then maybe, just maybe, it'll all pay off, your resume will be there and you'll get the job. You get the position, you get the status. And Christianity comes along, Jesus comes along and goes, no, 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 I see what you're doing. You're relating to this whole thing, this temples and, and sacrifices and doing all the work, working your tail off. You're doing this whole thing to try to like resume, get yourself a job, get yourself the position. What if, for Peter, what if you aren't working for a position? You aren't operating your life for a position. What if you are operating your life from a position? What if this whole thing isn't like a job or a company to work for or, or a grade in a class? What if this whole thing wasn't a resume, but it was a family? And the position was just yours. And how you operated out of that family was as normal as breathing. But for you, breathing is the love that you have for one another. Uh, P- Peter goes on in his, uh, in his next line, so we'll just continue it here in verse 23. And Peter goes, for you have been born again. I gotta highlight that one so we can remember. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, not of uh, like this world, but of imperishable uh, through the living, enduring word of God. I got to be careful like a little bit here because there might be some kiddos hanging around, but we're going we're gonna to get into some territory. We talk about being born again, talking about where babies come from. This is going to be new information to some people. I'm kidding on that. It's, it's chill. We're good. We're good. We're talking about being born again, and this is like, this is going to be an observation. This is a big one, right? Little, little things like grow up into bigger things. Like little creatures, little animals grow up into bigger animals. You kind of tracking with me on this one? Right? Like this is, this is going to blow your mind. I know. But we get a little, little baby golden retriever, right? What you got in approximately three months is a big, big golden retriever. Those things grow fast, don't they? And, and you know what you're getting. I hope you knew what you were getting when you brought that little, little golden retriever home. You get a little, little baby calf. Little baby calf grows up into a great big cow. You know what I'm saying? All right, you get a little baby infant, and a little baby infant, you know, gets into a regular sized person. Some of you are on the football team, maybe you're a little bit bigger than the regular sized person, but you know, what I, you know what I mean on that. Little things, little creatures, little people grow into bigger things, bigger people. That's just what it means to be born. 
But what Peter is doing and how Peter is landing this, and he's going, hey, you gotta understand something. You're not born like a regular person. When you're, when you're born again, you're born not a perishable, not of like this, this world around here, but imperishable, the living, enduring word of God. It's not just you and your humanness that's born again. And Peter is writing the exiles, and again, all of us, and he's going, as you grow up, you grow up not just looking like your perishable mom and dad. You grow up looking not just like the world around you. You grow up looking and resembling, and yes, loving your father in heaven. And it's as like natural as breathing is. We love because we live. And I, and I love this. This is this, this picture. Uh, his name is, is Paul Cedar. Uh, a long time ago, when he was, he was a kid, his dad was the, uh, the athletic director at Judson, then college, and looked out in, uh, in Illinois, looked out over a river, and he remembered he'd go and he'd visit his dad and his awesome window in his office, and he could look down and he could see the, the river down below. And Paul goes, I remember as a kid, there was this guy that was out there every single day taking care of the ducks. And, you know, it, it caught my attention because every time, literally every time I went, he was taking care of the ducks. Uh, summer, winter, hot and humidity, freezing cold rain. Every day he was out there taking care of the ducks. He would, he would even, in the winter time, he would bring a shovel with him when the river was frozen over, and he would smash out of the river a cutout so the ducks not only would have something to eat, but they would have something to drink as well. And so years go by, same thing. He asks his dad, why in the world does this guy take care of these ducks every day? And he's old enough now, his dad goes, you want to hear the, the real story? Uh, that guy, about a decade ago, got back from Vietnam. And he saw some acts of horror there. His unit, his entire unit was ambushed and everyone was killed and lay dead around him. He was the only one that wasn't shot. And so as the enemy approached, he hid amongst the dead bodies. Not shot, but pretending. But what the enemy soldiers were doing is they were putting one more in each body as they came through. And every time the gunshot went, he knew the next one could be him. And as they got close, some ducks started flying overhead, started making all this racket and acting all goofy. And, and, and the soldiers that were approaching, they were hungry as well, and they got distracted. They see the ducks overhead, and they start shooting, and they start chasing. They, they started running after the ducks, and they never came back. The guy out by the river was feeding the ducks. He loved the ducks because the ducks saved his life. And, and, Peter, and Peter is going, I kind of get that. You love because you live. And Peter is going, I was in this, this state where I had just betrayed my Savior. I just sold out the only one who would ever love me unconditionally to death and back again to new life. I was in a place of being dead. Like Judas, I maybe wanted to be dead. And then my Savior met me, loved me, and reinstated me. Love 
To me, after this new life of being born again, it's like the most natural thing in the world to me. I love because I live. So we ask that question, what does religion require? All of these rules, but the weird thing about what Christianity requires is what does, what does love require? Jesus put this whole thing together for himself, and, and he said it so perfectly in, uh, in, in John chapter 15, and we're gonna pick it up here. John chapter 15, Jesus is with his rooms, they're crowded in this upstairs apartment, and Jesus looks at his disciples, and he goes, my, my command is this, and he's a rabbi, and he's a teacher, like a spiritual law, or a spiritual teacher, and, he, and he's, got a, he's got a command for him. He goes, this is what my command is, and the disciples are like teenagers, right? They're in the room, and they're going, you've got to be kidding me, not another command, I do not need another command. Because my command is this. Jesus, do you know how many commands there are? He probably does, yeah. He does. <laughs> we look at it and there's like, yeah, there's 10, right? There's 10 commandments. Those are more like the top 10 for the Old Testament, for these Jewish kids. They knew that. There's 10 commandments, but there's also a lot more of them. In fact, there's 635 explicit commandments in the Old Testament. And the rabbis, like Jesus would have probably in that day, worn a robe with little tassels on the end to remember and obey every single one of them. And so he looks at his disciples, his teenage followers, like you guys, and he goes, I got another one for you. This is my unique command that I'm going to put on you as well. And he goes, my command is this. Love each other. On top of that, love each other as I have loved you. you. You lived with me for the last few years. You know what this thing looks like. But this is what my command is. Love each other. And then what? And then the 635? Yeah. Yeah. But like, like the, the central thing on this whole thing is this. Love each other. That's, that's what it looks like. That's what's at the center of it. Like, like look out for one another. Love each other. What about the 66 books in the Bible? What about the whole thing? Yeah, everything, the law and the prophets, Jesus' euphemism for every, the whole Bible, the whole thing hangs on just this one command. That love each other. That's really it. That's all of it. If you love God and love one another, which is really a way of saying love, I, I, I think you kind of got it. <laughs> You're like, well, I can do that. No problem. Love one another. That's easy. That's a lot easier to remember than 635 explicit other commandments. I got love. I can do that. That's how I'm good. That's how I check the boxes. That's how I move forward. Harder than we think. I asked that question up on the screen. Let's get it up there. What does love require of you? Love requires of you to love some people that are really hard to love. Think of somebody in your mind hopefully you're not sitting next to them, that are hard to love. Controlling people are hard to love. Manipulating people are hard to love. Judgmental people are hard to love. People who refer to it as the Ohio State University are hard to love. Somebody's from Ohio and they're like, I'm not coming back. And just, I wish you well. That, <laughs> some people, come on, like we know that, right? Some people are just plain hard to love. And, and we look at this, this question, we're like, okay, but what does love require me in that instance? And you're like, do I need like a commandment? Do I need a box to check? Do I need a verse to reference? And you're like, should I, a question, you know, should I tell the truth? Well, again, just ask the question, lay the question on top of there. What does love require me in telling the truth? 
You know, like I, I could go to a Bible verse. I go to Exodus 20. I could go, I go to the Ten Commandments, number nine, thou shalt not bear false testimony against thy neighbor. Got it. It's like, no, you don't need a verse for that. You tell the truth because what lying does is it borrows from your penalty now and it transfers it onto somebody else for later. That's what, that's what lying does. And it's not loving. Come on, we don't need a verse for every last thing. Sometimes like that's our go-to thing. It's like, well, you know, should I be generous? Is there a verse for that? Oh, yeah, I read this one thing that if I plant $1, that God will give me back 10. No, come on. It's not, it's not that complicated. We don't need a verse for every last thing. You know why Christians are generous? This is complicated. This is wild. I, I, I know, but maybe write it down if, if you need to. But Christians are generous because it helps those who are generous too. <laughs> That's it. It's, a, it's the loving thing to do. In fact, everything is really summarized by that simple question, just what does love require of you? What does love require of me? Sometimes as a, as a pastor of a typically demographically young church, I get, I get this question about like, you know, boundaries and physical and relationship and like how far is too far and, you know, what's the furthest I can go without kind of stepping over that line. And, and it's like, you know, should I, should I do that? Can I, can I go for this? Can I... Is there a verse for like maybe why I shouldn't put pressure on my boyfriend, pressure on my, on my girlfriend? Uh, you, don't, you don't need a verse. I could probably come up with some verses, but you don't need a verse because what Christians do is love and what Christians do is not create regrets for other people. Because as a pastor, I'm also there when you're kind of at the place where you're getting married to somebody and you're doing that like awkward dance of like talking about a, ha- a past and histories and like how much and I'll reveal this if you reveal that and you're, and you're kind of like in this, this dance of revelation like sharing some of these things with the other person and, and as a Christian you don't want to be a regretful part of that other person's story it's just it's not the loving thing to do and you're like what if we're both into it though I have I have a boy at home you know the question sometimes is like what if it's consensual? I have a child at home and he does some ridiculous things at times. Sometimes they're my idea, but sometimes they're just his, you know? And if he's like, hey, the neighbor kid and I, we're gonna get together, we both got sharp sticks and we're gonna jab each other's eyes, one, two, three, at the same time. It's a bad idea, son. Don't do it. And he's like, no, but dad, it's consensual. I don't care. It's poking his eye out. Like, don't do it. It's harmful. It's not what Christians do to answer this question, what does love require of you? It's never poking somebody's eye out with a stick, even if he says it's okay, right? We run as Christians everything through this lens. What does love require of me? You might say that is far too simple. And I will remind you that oftentimes is the case that there's a difference, a crucial difference between what's simple and what's easy. What does love require of me? That's a simple question. It is far from easy. It's far from easy. Because when Jesus had to answer that question for you, it cost him an arrest. It cost him a sham trial. It cost him mockery, a crown of thorns, and being nailed to a cross. When he answered that question on your behalf, it cost him everything. 
And we have a saying around here at Encounter, if you stick around long enough, you'll, you'll hear me say it once or twice, that he loved you. He loves you to death and back again to new life. He answered that question, and it cost him everything. What does love require of you? A love, a love like that is transformational. A love like that is powerful. A love like that can turn the whole world upside down. A love like that has. Like if, you, if you think about, man, if every Christian in the world today just acted and lived out through that lens, through that grid, what does love require of me? On the field, off the court, in the office, friendships and romantic relationships, what does love require of me? You know, when, when a ref gives me a bad call, what does love require of me? When I'm opposing the team on the other side, yeah, but I'm still a Christian, and what does love require of me? I'm not going to go easy. It doesn't mean I go easy. To be the best, you've got to beat the best, so bring your best. I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do that with respect. What does love require of me? It changes things. It changes teams. It changes the classroom. It changes the work environment. It changes families and neighborhoods. It changes the world. You think of what it could look like. Guys, guys, it has changed the world. After Peter was writing some of this and, and Christianities are spreading throughout the Roman Empire and more and more people are living according to this grid, what does love require of me? A plague breaks out in 165 AD. Marcus Aurelius was the emperor at that time. Some people think that it was the world's first mass exposure of smallpox virus. Doesn't matter specifically what it was, but a quarter to a third of the world's population died. And several years later, when they finally got this thing under control, they would not forget. A hundred years later, when another virus breaks out and starts claiming lives, they knew what to do and they knew how contagious it was. And so what they did is they took everybody who showed any kind of symptom, any kind of illness, and they threw them outside the city gates to die by themselves so as not to infect anybody else. And it was the Christians asking themselves this question, but what does love require of me? Like the ducks overhead, Jesus has saved my life and I don't have it within me to ignore my dying brother or sister outside of the city gates. And so the Christians did. They went outside the city and they answered this question by distributing blankets and food and water. There's a historian, William McNeil, who wrote about this in the book, Plagues and People. And he goes, and just the thing was, those basic nursing techniques saved countless lives among the sick and dying. People started recognizing that Christians recovered from the illness better and faster than non-Christians did, and they called it a healing miracle. And they noticed that even, even the non-Christians that were kind of around physically, geographically locations, around the Christians, they were healing up faster and better as well. And they called that a miracle. And the historian goes, I don't, I don't know if it was a healing miracle or not. It's very difficult as a historian to, to prove or disprove that, but I, I got to say what it probably was is the miracle not of healing. It was a miracle of love. The miracle of just doing the right thing. The miracle of caring for your fellow human being. The world noticed. And if you are a Christian, 
You are living in a transformed world as a result of the love of Jesus radiating out at the center of time. And I want to invite you, if you haven't had that experience before, to place yourself in the hands of a loving Savior like Jesus. And it's going to look like three words, three simple words. It's going to look like Jesus, I'm sorry. Jesus, thanks. And Jesus, help me. Help. Let's pray that together. I want to invite you to stand up where you are, all of our locations as well, watching online. Take a moment, close your eyes, stand up. We're going to pray together as one body, one community, one church to Jesus. And with our eyes closed, we're going to simply pray those three words. And some of you are going to be, are going to be resonating with this for the first time. Some of you are going to go, I never, I've never heard of the gospel like that. I've never heard of Christianity as something other than a set of rules to follow. And I just want to invite you to pray these three words. I invite you to say, Jesus, sorry. I'm sorry for my unlove. I'm sorry for the ways that I've treated other people. I'm sorry for turning my back on you. I'm sorry for my doubts and my skepticism. Jesus, thanks. Thanks for making a way for me to come home. Thanks for your once and for all sacrifice. Thanks that there's not another set of rules that I have to follow 600 or 1,000 different check boxes to complete before I lay my head down at night. Thank you for grace, for your sacrifice so that I could live. And Jesus, help me to live a life worthy of calling myself a follower of you, a life transformed by love. And I'm sure some of you maybe prayed that for the first time or for the first time in a while. And if you're having this new experience of grace, if you're sensing God whisper these words right into your heart, sorry, thanks, help. I want to invite you to tell one person about that today. That's your homework assignment, just one person. Maybe it's the person that you came here with. Maybe it's me. At our locations, we have prayer tables set up in the auditorium. would love to hear from you. And if you're ready, we have a baptism Sunday coming up on October 1. You go to encounterchurch.org slash baptism and show the world love. Show the world you've been raised with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.